It was certainly a challenging year for Canadian banks back in 2023. The sector underperformed for most of the year, although we did see a bit of a surge later in the year. We're coming up to earnings season soon, so near the end of the month. And I was fortunate to be able to chat with Rob Wessel, who is the managing partner and a co-founder of Hamilton ETFs. And Rob shared his outlook on the Canadian banks with me. We talked about uh, some other issues as well that impact the sector as a whole. We talked about credit. We talked about dividends, mortgage renewal risk, which is coming uh, around down the pipe here in the next couple of years. We also spoke about rates. And then I asked him about his thoughts on the Canadian banks and their foreign uh, expansion and acquisition plans. So, you know, Rob has uh, 25 years, over 25 years experience in specializing in the financial services sector. He is a former number one ranked Canadian bank analyst. So I'm I'm sure that you will uh, appreciate his thoughts on the sector. Hamilton ETFs, it's one of Canada's fastest growing ETF providers. It manages close now to $4 billion in assets. It's actually the second largest provider of Canadian bank ETFs when you measure it by AUM. They were also the first to launch a modestly levered ETF, the Hamilton Enhanced Canadian Banks ETF. The ticker on that fund is HCAL, H-C-A-L, and that is outperforming all other Canadian bank ETFs since its inception over three years ago. So let's get to that interview right now. Rob, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you for having me. You bet. I know our audience is going to get a lot of value out uh, hearing your thoughts on this. So I want to kind of get right into the questions. I'm sure that our viewers are going to find uh, very interesting as well. Uh, I'm going to start right off with uh, Q4 2023. Remember the earnings season. It was a very, very messy quarter for the big Mm. six banks there. I know heading into those uh, results, you predicted it would be what you called a cleanup quarter. And one of the things that I noticed most obviously was that all of the banks raised their lo- their loss provisions, mm-hmm. and some of them by a pretty significant amount. So yeah. my question to you is, do you feel that they were being overly cautious, or is there in fact the, the potential risks that would necessitate these substantial provisions? I'm interested in your thoughts on that. Yeah, so without getting overly technical or going on too long, going into the quarter, we predicted that there would be three items that would contribute to a very messy quarter. The first one was exactly as you referenced, which would be rising loan losses or reserve builds. But Mm -hmm. we were a bit more granular. We suggested that it'd be an increase in performing allowances. So money set aside against loans that are still current in interest in principle. So that's very different than uh, setting aside allowances for if they're impaired. So that was number one. So absolutely, as you pointed out, there was a large build as we predicted. The second thing that we predicted, which would be important, was that there could be large restructuring charges, which would result in expense reductions on a prospective Mm -hmm. basis. And the third thing we mentioned is that those Canadian banks with U.S. bank subsidiaries would maybe take steps to sell their held to maturity portfolios without getting yeah. too granular or talking about accounting, basically selling loans with unre- or, or sorry, treasuries with unrealized losses and reinvesting in higher yielding ones on a prospective basis. So those three things uh, definitely happened. They were highly material. And in fact, if you look at the quarter in general, there was 21, 20 individual one time items that contributed to about $3 billion of unusual losses. So if you think about it, the banks basically make about $14 billion a quarter. So that gives you an idea of the quantum of un- mm. of one-time charges that were take- taken in order to clean up Q4 and set the stage for a better 24. No, that sounds good. Yeah, I, I remember that specifically. I read some of the material that you had put out and uh, it pretty much came to fruition there. So yeah, yeah it was a pretty, pretty painful quarter, but uh, here we are. We're now in 2024. Uh, I want to just sort of move on, Rob, to... Uh, 
the, the concept of earnings growth. Mm-hmm. And as far as 2024 is concerned, I'm looking to see what your thoughts are there. Do you feel there's the possibility that the banks will uh, be reporting earnings declines as we go through the quarters? Or what's well, your no, take on that? No, definitely not. Well, not definitely not. You can never say definitely. It depends on the macro environment. Based on what we know today, <laughs> mm. consensus is basically for earnings per share growth to be about 6% from 23 to 24 um, a lot of that will depend on whether they do better or worse. Well, obviously, leaving aside a rapid change in the macro environment, which is inherently unpredictable, but let's say the macro environment and unemployment and interest rates, which I know we're going to talk about, evolve in a way that is largely in line with what we'll say consensus. Right. Um, I think there's probably more upside to that 6%. And the reason for that is, to, to your first question, Mark, the analysts we think are being quite conservative on credit. Uh, in particular on their forecast loan losses. They're forecasting about 17 billion for next year. Uh, last year was uh, 23 was 13 billion with 3 billion in reserve bills, but we think the reserve bills are likely going to end. So we think embedded in uh, analyst forecast estimates is somewhere along a 40 to 70% increase in loan losses. That is very, very aggressive or very conservative, we'll call it. So I think there's probably a very good chance we're about to find out in Q1 if we're directionally accurate. Um, but I, I think that number is probably going to be too conservative, which means of that 6% growth, I think there's probably more upside than downside. Well, that's kind of encouraging. I'm good to hear that because, you know, you're reading all kinds of things out there today. Yeah. Um, I want to look back to 2023, uh, Rob, and even with that bounce that we saw in the fall, yeah. uh, the Canadian banks have been down over the past couple of years. Yes. And even with that rally, do you think that the, the banks are still inexpensive? Where are they valued at these yeah, days? Yeah, so, you know, we're in this kind of awkward period. You know, the banks trade about 10.3 times current earnings, about 9.7 times forward. Um, we are just at the beginning of, of current. So let's call it, if you did a mix, uh, 10 times, something like that, uh, a combination of the two. And I think that's a pretty reasonable valuation. If, if the banks end up reporting 14, 15% ROE, which I think is quite quite plausible, then I think that's a reasonable valuation. At the end of the day, though, stock prices will go up roughly in line with the growth of core cash EPS, Mm -hmm. which, as I mentioned, is 6%, which we think there would be some upside. To the extent that credit comes in better than expected, uh, that will be a lift. But I I do think that um, the banks do reflect a a pretty good risk reward. And the other thing I would point out is, exactly to your point, Mark, that the banks are down over a two-year period. That's a highly unusual event. If you go to our website, HamiltonETFs.com, for our YouTube channel, um, we did a video, a five, just a five-minute video on it's very unusual for the banks to be down over a two-year period. It hasn't happened very often in the history of the index. So we went back and, and, and accumulated all of the instances that had happened, and then we reviewed what happened in the following mm. 12 months, and 95% of the time, in a statistically valid sample, the banks were up. So leaving aside all of the stuff we're talking about, Q4 and the fundamentals and valuation, at the end of the day, history is on your side. Yeah, it's always valuable, as we say. You know, you, history doesn't guarantee anything, but it does give you a pretty good, a pretty good educated guess as to what might be yeah, happening, so. and it's a pretty good, pretty good number there. Um, I want to just sort of talk about something that I would say positive. I believe that all of the banks in 2023 ended up raising dividends throughout the year. Yeah. Um, Obviously, this is a very high priority for the banks. Mm-hmm. Do you think, though, in light of sort of all the harsher regulatory environments we're feeling today, do you think they might be pushing things a little bit too far or are you comfortable with the safety of the dividends? No. So so that's a great question. Obviously, it's top of mind for individual investors in particular. Um, so what I would say is, first things first, it is highly unlikely any Canadian bank cuts their dividend. The last time that happened in 1992 was National Bank, and that was a you know an unbelievably severe 
credit cycle with commercial real estate. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, the Canadian banks, when they destroy capital, are much more likely to raise equity to replace it rather than cut their dividend. So um, I think the chance of a dividend cut is, is extraordinarily low. When I was a bank analyst, I used to say the chance of that happening was as close to zero as possible without being zero. I, I'll, I'll stick with that. <laughs> Having said that, I don't know that the dividend story is as positive as it has been historically. And the reason for that is the Canadian banks want to consistently raise dividends, but earnings growth has been flat for two and a half years. So what that meant is that payout ratios, the amount of dividends that a bank pays relative to the amount it generates has been creeping higher as you've had dividend growth without an increase in earnings growth. Mm -hmm. So what I think that means is that if you do get a bump in earnings growth going forward, let's say just hypothetically, earnings per share growth is 10%. We'll just throw out a number. I know consensus is six. Let's say 10, just because it's a nice round number. I don't think dividend growth is going to be 10%. Right. So I think dividend growth in the same way in the last two and a half years, it has outpaced earnings growth because earnings growth has been zero effectively. I think it will, it will be slower growth than earnings growth as they try to get these payout ratios back down to more normal percentages. Yeah, that's awesome commentary. And I know that so many investors love the dividends that historically yeah. the Canadian banks have paid. And so that yeah. gives us a little bit more uh, background. Well, they're, they're just not going to grow. They're not going to grow as fast as earnings, I would say, in the next two years. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I agree with that. I, I would expect growth, but more muted yeah. than we've seen. Uh, good. I want to talk, if you don't mind, Rob, about something that has just been in the, the newspaper headlines everywhere. And there's a ton of chatter out there sure. about the massive number of mortgages that are coming due in the next yeah. couple of years. And this is a big thing. Uh, mostly, it's a big deal because of the low interest rates that we saw you know, up through early 2022. Yeah. Of course, now when these mortgages come due, they're going to be renewing at these new higher rates. And there's yeah. a fear. I think it's legit, legitimate sure. fear about delinquencies. But what are your thoughts on that issue that's coming down the pipe here? So we can have a whole separate video on this, Mark. Um, this could be, uh, quite honestly, this could be a one half, this could be a 30 minute answer. Uh, but let me get to the Cole's note if I can age myself. Sure. Um, the first thing is I would say is yes, this is a very real concern, number one. Number two is it's not likely to produce provisions for credit losses in the bank income statement. And the reason for that is the CMHC pays an outsized role in insuring right. mortgages against right. defaults. And so um, provisions for loan losses, uh, for credit, provisions for credit losses, excuse me, for a Canadian bank for residential mortgages generally is almost zero. Uh, and that's because the higher risk component of the book is insured. And so to the extent that there's a default and the bank has to foreclose and sell, um, chances are it's CMHC that's on the hook for that. By the way, in a period where you've had massive increases in home prices, in most instances, the value of the house is actually worth, still worth more than the mortgage. So the value of losses is, is, is still quite low. So what I would say is, mm. yes, it's a real concern, but the concern is not how you would think it would be, which is in defaults and loan losses on a bank income statement, rather what it is likely to do, and I think this is a real issue, is it weighs on consumer spending and weighs on GDP growth. And if you think about it, bank revenue growth is highly correlated with nominal GDP growth. And so if nominal GDP growth, basically it's hard for the bank, it's hard for bank stocks to go up if the economy is struggling. Right, because revenue growth is correlated with GDP growth. If GDP growth is terrible, which it has been for a while, then that weighs on bank revenue growth. And that also helps explain why they're down over a two year period. 
Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's a very sort of an insightful uh, answer there. And I know it is like it's on a lot of people's minds. Mm-hmm. I, I think, you know, the, the massive number of mortgages that are coming due over the next, I think, 24 months or so is going to be a, a yeah. big deal. So that's sort now, of, if rates I, go down, though, if rates go down, mm-hmm. um, that will take a lot of pressure off this refi. Right. Because sure. right now, you know, everybody is stress testing for what happens if mortgages get refinanced at the current rates. But if the economy, you know, if if the central banks, just, you know, feel it's appropriate to start reducing rates, then that refi risk uh, in terms of people resetting and having much higher payments uh, off of the renewal, that risk gets you know gradually lower. So the more rates decline, the more that risk diminishes. Well, you must be reading my mind because that pretty much segues right into the next question I had here for you. And that, that's basically, uh, like you just said, everyone basically predicts that at some point in the, in the uh, year, uh, Bank yeah. of Canada will start cutting the rates. The debate is how soon will that come? When will those come? So I'm, if, I'm going to Limburg. Do you have a prediction, yeah. Rob, about when you think they'll be head, heading lower? Or I would say even more importantly, what impacts will those lower rates have on the banks? Yeah, so let's tier the, tier the question. The first thing is, is I have no educated view on, on when rates will go down or how much. And I always joke that if I did, then you should, you should not uh, follow our firm because I think the global bond market and the Canadian bond market and the U.S. bond market have trouble predicting rates. So uh, I don't presume to have more knowledge than the global bond market. So generally what we do is we look at what consensus is looking for and we see, does that seem reasonable? And if consensus is wrong um, in either up or down, what might that mean? Um, And so let's say for the sake of discussion that rates go down, um, that's probably going to help bank stocks, period, Um, because people will feel that's more stimulative. And as we talked about, uh, bank revenue growth is correlated with GDP growth. If rates go down, people will conclude that that's a boost to GDP growth and therefore that's a boost to bank revenues. And that would be true. Um, and then you get to the idea, okay, well, is there, what's the pressure on net interest margins? Is that, is that ameliorated or is that enhanced? And I, I, don't, I don't know that that's going to be a, a big variable. And the other thing is falling interest rates might actually get you a bit more capital markets activity uh, and market sensitive revenues for a Canadian bank. I know we've been talking about GDP. I know we've been talking about interest rates and, and credit. But capital markets is a very, very big part of bank profitability. They generate mm-hmm. about $6 billion of revenues every quarter, 6 to $8 billion. Mm-hmm. So to the extent you get falling rates, there's a good chance you get greater market activity. And if that number goes from 6 7 to $8 billion, uh, remember we talked about how um, consensus forecast EPS growth is for 6%. That number will be higher than 6 if you get greater market activity because the markets right now have been very weak uh, for quite a while. So bottom line is it's a mixed story. There's not a clean, easy rates go down, here's the one thing you need to know. But generally speaking, there's a, a large number of positives that add up to something meaningful. Um, yeah, I'm always surprised when I look at the the, um, the odds of uh, the next cut coming yeah. in March or in, in, in April or May. Yeah. And it, they change so rapidly. The, yeah. the slightest piece of information will come out and all of a sudden yeah. the odds go from 50 to 20, you know, yeah. kind of thing. So yeah. it's pretty, pretty hard. I'd like to shift things a little bit more outside of Canada here, Robin. Sure. Uh, you'd be the expert on this. But over the years, obviously, the Canadian banks have become more international. Mm-hmm. That trend is continuing today. And even if I think of the past year, we saw some very large acquisitions. Of course, mm-hmm. we saw here at home, HSBC Canada, that was acquired by RBC. Uh, BMO uh, bought Bank of the West. You touched on that earlier. Uh, TD already has a pretty large U.S. platform. You go to some cities down there, you see the banks everywhere. They tried to buy First Horizons, of course, but that deal failed. And more recently, the, the new CEO of Scotia really appears to be focused on Canada as they go through their strategic shift. So I'm just sort of curious what your thoughts are on the Canadian banks expanding to the U.S., 
or elsewhere. Right. Uh, if that's something that you feel is necessary, or as a, a fund manager with uh, you know with banks, would you prefer they stay focused on the domestic operations? Yeah. So, well, my preference won't matter because uh, the banks in Canada are very much focused on capital deployment. So, um, a good way to think about it is, you know, the banks will generate. Um, let's say they have a fifteen percent ROE. They have a forty percent payout ratio. That means, you know. 60% of capital that gets generated doesn't get paid out in dividends. Some of that is used to fund organic growth. And then there's a big excess every single mm -hmm. quarter. It adds mm -hmm. up and it adds up. So the Canadian banks uh, have two choices. One is they could increase their payout ratios to like 70% or something like that and just drive up their yield and say, we have a fortress here in Canada. Um, you know, that would be an option. Uh, but they absolutely, we've been writing about uh, bank expansion and capital deployment for at least 25, for 25 years. Uh, there's no question that Canadian banks emphasize capital deployment. And it is even just the, the, the subsidiaries that you mentioned. For example, RBC bought an asset manager in Europe. So there's, all, there's just lots of different pockets of things that they're investing in. Uh, RBC has a very large full-service broker in the United States. They have a top 10 uh, global investment bank centered in, in Wall Street. Um, at the end of the day, it's as long as they can make acquisitions where the rate of return is greater than their cost of capital, they can create shareholder value. Uh, now, they don't always do that, but they've done it pretty much over time. And I think they've done a relatively good job. Um, again, lots of missteps along the way, but some successes as well. Um, but the other thing it's done is it's made them less cyclical, right? As every time the Canadian banks, you know, make an acquisition. So let's say TD's US platform, you know, back in 1991, everybody was loaded up on Olympia and York, the world's largest real estate developer. So when it went bankrupt, they had massive losses, National Bank cut their dividend. But if you think about it, 25 years later, one of the products or outcomes of, of, of foreign expansion is they've become much more diversified by product and by geography uh, and, and, um, uh, and by revenue stream. And so that has made them so much more diversified because banks run into trouble when they have too much of something. Mm. So the more domestic you are, the more likely you are to have too much of something. And if that something has a, a problem from a credit perspective, uh, then it can be disproportionately harmful to you. Obviously, that matters to banks because they're highly levered institutions. Um, so one of the things I think that a lot of people forget is just the sheer diversification benefit reduces credit risk and reduces a whole bunch of other risks. And so I think that's actually a, a fairly big positive. In terms of, of where they go from here, I think now, if you think about it, you know, the U.S. has higher GDP growth than Canada. So the more U.S. you have, you know, in theory, the more you should grow. I should also point out that you've seen net interest income lift from currency revaluation of net interest income as the Canadian dollar falls, it gets translated back in even greater amounts to the Canadian parent. Um, so you've got some revenue lifts from that. But at the end of the day, I think it's been a positive, again, spotty execution in the middle and it, not all of them have worked and not everybody has done as well. But overall, I think it's been a positive because they have been able to create shareholder value, not a ton as much as Canada, obviously, um, but the diversification benefit is very real and very important. No, uh, awesome. And yeah, what I'm taking from that is um, this expansion beyond our borders is good as long as it's executed. That's really what it comes yeah, down I to. So. <laughs> yeah, makes sense. Um, I want to I want to just talk a little bit about um, expectations for Canada's economic uh, growth and everything I've looked at from the Bank of Canada on down. Basically, mm -hmm. things are I'm going to just say pretty grim. Uh, GDP growth is expected to be pretty low this year. Uh, the unemployment rate is expected to go higher. Mm -hmm. The cost of housing, as we mentioned, is sort of crushing some of the families. So when you look at that, what spin-off effects of these economic issues do you see having on the banks? 
Yeah, I mean, so there's two big challenges as it relates to to the federal government. One is um, they definitely uh, don't like the banking sector as much as uh, previous governments. So you have much higher regulatory risk. And in some cases, it seems almost um, gratuitously punitive. So that's not a positive because it does have a bit of an overhang. You've seen some special bank taxes, things like that. Um, but the, the worst thing or the more challenging or more troubling thing is that um, less pro-growth fiscal policy, one that focuses less on, you know, productivity, tax policy, how to make, mm -hmm. how to encourage foreign investment. Anytime you have policies which discourage that or make that more difficult, it weighs on GDP growth. And you go back to banking 101, the weaker GDP growth it is, the weaker revenue growth there is for, for the banks and therefore the lower the earnings per share growth. So it, it really is. It really is sort of that simple. Um, in our next video, I'm going to make it purely political and we can start talking about the, the people that make all these key decisions, Rob. So, uh, but it's, uh, I, I think what I'm saying is widely understood. Yeah, I, I hear you. And I'm sure I'm sure a lot of people watching the video will have their input onto yeah. that as well. So, well, Rob, um, those are sort of the questions I had. I think that gives us more depth, more breadth into this discussion of Canadian yeah. banks in general. And, you know, like I said, this sort of when I did the introduction, your expertise in this area is is so uh, vast. And so I uh, said the way, way more depth than I could have ever gone into. So I really appreciate you coming on and taking the time and, and sharing this with us. Oh, it was my pleasure. You bet. So thanks again to Rob Wessel for sharing his decades of experience in the banking sector. I appreciate the time he spent with us here. Before I sign off, I did want to share an investment idea with you. Earlier in the video, I mentioned the Hamilton Enhanced Canadian Bank ETF. The ticker on that is HCAL. And if you are interested in a position in the Canadian banks, but you're just not sure how to proceed, this might just be a solution for you. The fund itself has equal weight exposure to Canada's big six banks, so you get that there. Um, also, it has that modest 25% leverage that is going to enhance the growth potential and the yield. The black line here, that's the return of the sole active equal weight Canada Banks Index since March of 2007. The gold line, that's the same index, but with returns reflecting a 25% leverage position. A key to this fund here is that the volatility profile isn't materially different from any individual bank. You can see how that compares here with the big six. As I mentioned, HCAL is the top performing Canadian bank ETF uh, since its inception. I will put a link for the Hamilton ETFs website in the description of this video. As always, hope you enjoyed. We'll see you in the next video.